Welcome to the Four Exchange. I am your host, Rob, and today I am joined by Jerxy. Hello, Jerxy. Hey, how's it going? It's going well, buddy. Happy to have you. So just a quick little side that Jerxy's been actually sick with coronavirus, and we're happy to have you. Glad to hear you're recovering. Yeah, I'm slowly on the man. Still not 100%. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I'm glad to hear that you're better, <laughs> but it's just, it's, yeah, I'm sure it was scary, but yeah, glad to have you here. And Ben. Hi, Ben. You all right, mate? I'm good. How's everything with you? Everything's good here, man. Everything's good. It's it's past 3 a.m. in the morning, but other than that, everything's great. I'm, I'm smiley, happy, shy. <laughs> all right. Well, with that being said, let's move into the news. First things first, we're going to talk about interstellar inter, wow, interstellar space genesis. That's what it's called. <laughs> Does not surprise me that I had a hard time saying that because I can't say it once, let alone twice. So interstellar space genesis is released. It's version 1.1, which we were fortunate enough to get uh, last week, right? And we streamed it a bit. I streamed it for like an hour and a half on one night and was pretty impressed by the improvements that it's made. So it's it's got some new graphics, some new UI elements. And there's new heroes, just a bunch of new things. And I was pretty surprised by how all-encompassing that improvement was. What did you guys think? Yeah, I was watching your stream the other night, mate. It looks brilliant. uh, The new graphics just really, they sit so much better with the rest of the user interface. And it just makes the game seem so much more polished. And also, you know, just how quickly it plays now. It's much quicker than it was on release. So the game just seems a lot better, in a lot better state. Yeah, I had a, maybe an hour, hour and a half. Looks really good so far, but of course I've been ill, so I haven't been able to put much time into it. But yeah, looking forward to get back into it. Yeah, and, and I honestly, it was the first time I had fun with it. And I don't know if it's because of the pacing, but it was definitely much more fun. And I was able to actually explore some of the game that I have never explored before because it, before it would just, you know, I'd get to like turn 120 and I hadn't done shit. And I was just like, you know what? That's it. I'm moving on. But now I felt like I was doing a lot more, having a lot more done. Research might have been a little too fast. Maybe they went a little too far on that end of the spectrum. But other than that, I felt really good about it. So very excited to keep playing that. And I will stream it again soon. So keep an eye out for that. And next up is a game that's not actually 4X, but it's a game that I have done some streaming coverage of and some video coverage of called Fort Triumph. It's basically like a Heroes of Might and Magic meets XCOM. And it has a release date, which is now, I think, April 16th. And that is exciting because there's uh, quite a bit coming to that like final update. You know, you'll be able to play as a few different races, and the the full campaign mode is going to be complete. And honestly, I think that's going to be a bit of a sleeper hit because you know the, the idea of mixing Heroes of Might and Magic and XCOM. You know, it sounds good on paper, and it's actually pretty darn good in presentation and actual practice. So I'm excited to see what the response is to that game. Did you guys see that at all? Have you seen my videos or played it at all? No, I've not. I've not actually checked this one out yet. But when you say it's like Heroes of Might and Magic meets XCOM, does it have? Is it got like two different, you know, like a strategic section and a tactical section afterwards? Why, yes, it is. So the strategic portion is very much like Might and Magic, where you're moving your army around, or in this case, like your very small group, and you're collecting resources and you're fighting. You know, you're moving into enemy groups and you're fighting them and stuff like that. It's it's very similar to Heroes of Might and Magic. And then like the town building too is very similar in that you build buildings and they give you various upgrades to your units and stuff like that. But 
the combat itself is much more like, you know, much more focused, much smaller in scale than, you know, even Heroes of Might and Magic or anything like that. You know, you only have three or four, you know, a, a half dozen units where you're moving through in a very XCOM-like tactical battle. So it's, a, it's just really cool. It's a very cool combination. It plays well. It's very fun. And it's made by a group that no one really knows about. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to surprise a lot of people. Oh, that sounds cool, man. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, and I'll do probably another stream of that too. Why not? You, me, and Ben are like just streaming shit all the time. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, right. So we've been trying to get the Twitch channel kind of reactivated and on the go, and we've had some good feedback from it so far. I think we just we need to start thinking about uh, more regular slots. I think that's going to be the next thing to do, so that so that our audience kind of know when it is that we're going to be on, and they're not sort of surprised that. One of us has just popped on and, and is halfway through a game. So, yeah, I mean, if anybody in the comments wants to let us know what they think about that and if they've got any suggestions for games to play or anything, that would be great as well. Absolutely. We always listen. Always. <laughs> Anyways, there's also two new Stellaris Dev Diaries, uh, number 174 and 175, basically just sort of outlining what's next after Federations. They talk a little about a little bit about exactly what's coming in 174. Well, maybe not exactly. They briefly, broadly describe what's going to happen in 174. And then 175, they're talking about some new space fauna that they're going to introduce and stuff like that. So those are some new additions coming to Stellaris. I have someone writing a review for Federations right now. So thankfully, we will have an, an, an original <laughs> Federations review coming soon. So look forward to that. Oh, great. Add more stuff to that game rather than fixing what's there. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just so bitter about Stellaris after this uh, Federation's deal. Yeah, like I, I actually I picked it back up again and, and played through, and I probably played about six hours of it, and I was like, okay, I've been playing this for six hours now, and I'm still really not that far into it. I've not even, I've not even seen the content that's in Federations yet, and uh, I don't know. Like I remember you were saying, Rob, that it, this was probably Solaris's last chance for you. And I uninstalled it the other day. I've got to be honest with you. I, I needed room for something else, and I was like, ah, Solaris has got to go. I'm, I might. I'm just going to wait for a little bit longer and just hope hope that they, they that something happens with it that just kind of makes it a little bit more interesting for me. But I've got better games than that at the moment. Yeah, I haven't gone back to it to be honest. So I was playing it right as it came out. I played enough to be like, okay. Things are better, but they're still not fun. So I I did the same thing. I uninstalled it. And I think, honestly, I'm done. Like, I just don't think Stellaris is ever going to be the game that I wanted it to be, nor is it ever going to be a game that I truly enjoy like some people do, which, you know, to each their own, and I'm happy for you if you really like Stellaris. There is a subset that's, like, extremely passionate about Stellaris. That's never going to be me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, congratulations. Have fun with it. Yeah, I think the problem is their DLC uh the way they do they deal see they've got to keep adding stuff to the game which it's just not working it's just too much too much busy work um in this game now and compared to a game we're going to be speaking about soon um you can it's a you know it's totally different end of a spectrum really anyway let's move on <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, we will be talking about Master Ryan here at the second half of the show. Master Ryan 1, that is. And yeah, in stark contrast to Stellaris, there's very few systems in Master Ryan 1, which I think is to its serious benefit. But we'll talk about more about that in a little bit. And before we move to that, we're going to talk a little bit about Alliance of the Sacred Sons. It has its military system part two dev diary. It talks about the ground combat system. 
It's a giant outline. You have to read it if you want to. It's super long and it's pretty digestible in that it's it's very easy to read. It sounds like it's going to be a pretty simple ground combat system and that it's not like, you know, you're not going to be using like some sort of tactical system or anything like that. It's much more akin to, you know, just numbers and stuff like that and making sure that you have technology advances and and stuff like that that's going to help you win the, the battle before you get there, much like a lot of other games we've talked about. But... Yeah, so that game continues to improve. We're excited to see how that in-game is coming in to kind of foreshadow or maybe even preemptively announce that I'm going to have a stream with Steve Hawkins. We're going to have one that I'm going to announce well ahead of time so that people can see when it's going to be. And we're going to have as many people who want to join in in on our Twitch channel and we'll have Steve and myself playing the game and you guys can all join in and ask questions and all that stuff. So stay tuned for that. Next up, we have Amplitude Studios humankind their newest video right so they've had like a video series where they've kind of showed off various gameplay elements this one's called shaping your legacy it talks about how you're going to win in humankind and it's based on your fame it's basically a score but i think it's cool in the way it's going to incorporate a bunch of different elements of gameplay to bring that score and to i mean it's it's about how well your civilization has like, creates a legacy right so if you can go down and face the test of time and become something that people remember, a civilization that people will forever remember, then you've basically won the game of humankind. So it didn't give too much and like it wasn't super detailed on to how those scores are calculated or anything like that, but it is basically a score, but that's what it boils down to. Did you guys watch the video at all? No, but it does just sound like a score from the way that you're describing it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure that they will be able to ex- expand on how it is that they're going to do that without it just being a you know the kind of score that you get in civilization. For sure, I'm hoping that they do that as well. So anyway, let's talk about the last news item, which is probably the most exciting. I think for well, maybe one of the most exciting of the, of the week. There's a lot of stuff that came out that's exciting for me, but. God King Master of Rituals, which is a Forex game that I've shown off a couple times, much in the way of, I guess, not, is it Conquest of Elysium? So it's something, yeah, right? Yes, that's right. Conquest of Elysium. So from what I've heard, I have never played the game, but a lot of people are saying that this game is very reminiscent of that, only much more modern looking. And I've shown it off in not only a Let's Play video from YouTube, but also through our Twitch streams. It came out in early access at the probably ridiculous price of $40. I'm going to admit that that's a little too high. I'm surprised and a little disappointed to see that price point. So, but the game has potential. So there is that, but I just worry that they won't find that potential if they don't have enough people buying in at that price point. Yeah. That's my biggest problem with this game is uh, I was excited for this. And then I saw the uh, price for an early access game. It's it's too much of a risk personally. Yeah. I think if, uh, if they, I know it's not trying to be a remake or something of Conquest of Elysium. They've just said that it's been inspired, but from watching you play, it looks very, it looks very similar, particularly the way that the uh, combat works out. And you know, Conquest of Elysium is what twenty dollars or something, and that is a ridiculously good game as well, Rob. You need to play that at some point. It might be a good entry feed into Dominions as well if you've not really, if you've not given Dominions a chance yet. But Conquest of Elysium's, you know, very much like the game that we're about to speak about. It, uh, it it looks kind of simple on the surface, but it's actually quite complex um, when you get into it. And it's it's certainly one of those games that gets better with repeated plays because, because there's just so much content in there. 
Yeah, and some of the things, some of the earlier comments that I've read about this game on their Steam discussions group are that basically you're looking at a game that may look better, but has like a quarter of the content and and you know some some of the things that I've read about Conquest of the Elysium. Of course, I've, I've now that you you're saying this, and of course after I've read all this stuff, I'm, I'm thinking maybe it might be a game for me because it sounds like it's pretty fun and I enjoy God King. So if I think that if I'm enjoying God King, then I think I would enjoy Conquest of Elysium, especially if there's a lot of content, and a lot of cool stuff that's going on in that game. So eh, we'll see. Yeah, I mean it is early access, so you expect the uh, content to be less. I mean. Conquest of Elysium is on its full version, so it's had plenty of time. But like you're saying, at this price point, are they going to get enough people to buy in to develop this game more? And yeah, that is the biggest worry. All right, so that wraps up our news for this week. And let's get into our weekly topic. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So in this week's For Exchange topic, we're going to be talking about the one and only Master Ryan 1. And in doing so, we thought it would be a good idea to bring on a an expert, subject matter expert in some ways. Yeah, I would, I would call you a subject matter expert. Mr. Ray Fowler, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here. So we brought you on because you are the lead developer, the only developer of Remnants of the Precursors, which is a game we have been streaming a bunch. And... You're moving into the beta period here in just oh, like a few short days. So, yeah, we know that you have a, a like a almost encyclopedic knowledge of Master Ryan 1, right? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd call it that, but uh, um, when you're recreating a game, you pretty much have to learn all the nuances of it. So, I don't know, pretty close. I'd say so. So, Remnants of the Precursors is basically a modernization of Master Ryan 1. He has brought the the core elements of Master Ryan 1 straight into 2020 with new UI elements, new graphics, new artwork, but it retains all of the basic Master Ryan 1 gameplay and systems. So this is a game we wanted to talk about because we think that in a lot of ways, it represents all that is right about 4X. And I know that's, 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 that's a tall order, right? And in saying that, you're probably like, holy crap, this must be the Holy Grail. And there are a lot of people that, I mean, like, there's like a, an internal debate, right? Amongst people who play Space 4X games about whether or not Master Ryan 1 or Master Ryan 2 is better. And I think the majority of this panel here agrees that Master Ryan 1 is the better game, right? Yep, I agree. Yeah, I, I 
I've been playing both recently and I've put more time into Master of Orion 1, I've got to be honest, because I quickly realized that it was it's just a really elegant game design. And it's it's a game that you can play once you learn the systems and you you learn the user interface, you can play it through relatively quickly. Uh, I say relatively because in the original Master of Orion, the user interface is quite it's quite convoluted to use now by today's standards. So that's the you know that's the thing that kind of slows the game down. But other than that, you can play Master of Orion right through in in I think probably half the time that you can play a game of, of Master of Orion two, uh, just because it's just much more streamlined. My take on it is I think they're both really good games, but I suspect that of the people that have played both games extensively, I think more people would prefer Master of Orion one, despite the fact that its interface is more dated. Okay, I'm one of those people who didn't play Master Ryan 1 much because I looked at it as well. I didn't have it. I, did, I wasn't playing uh, Forexes at the time. So, And then whenever I, saw, I got it off GOG and I sort of looked at it and I didn't really get into it. But Remnants of the Precursors now has given me an incentive to dig in. And, yeah, I'm loving it so far. Um, it's one of those games that are, it's quite simple on the surface, I find. But actually, once you start getting into it, there is quite a lot to learn but you can it's kind of paced well it's not like you've just flooded with all this stuff you need to learn it's actually as you go on you start picking up uh the game sort of opens up to you the longer you play it yeah that's right because like you say it's simple it looks simple on the surface and you don't have to i don't know like i don't know in the original master of orion one right um the first few times that i played it as i usually do now I tried to play it, well, in fact, for most of the time that I was learning to play Master Orion 1, I kind of watched some YouTube videos, but I didn't read the manual. So um, it, it was a little it was a little complex at first, and I um, the YouTube videos really helped me kind of get an idea of what it was that expert players were doing in order to in order to kind of to be to be any good at it. However, uh, the, the Master Orion One's actually got a really amazing manual, and the manual has got some interesting uh, exposition into into potential strategies. So it's one of those games that if you if you have read the manual, you you would have realised that it is actually really it's really deep, and it allows the player it allows the player a lot of scope uh, within which to build strategies around it as the game develops so yeah it does seem sim- simple on the surface but the more you play it actually you'll realize hang on a minute this is actually really deep much like what we were saying about Con- uh, conquest of elysium it's very very similar the game mechanics are in there allow for this for this really deep interaction with the game and it's just a joy it's a joy to play because it, it uh, the the strategies that you develop they really start to unfold as the game develops and it can go in different ways for sure. And I think I agree with what Ray said as we started this, that they're both great games, right? So Master of Ryan 1 and Master of Ryan 2 are games that have gone down through the annals of history because they are great. They're, they're, they're both great for very, very different reasons, right? And, and there's a lot of reasons. There's, a, there's quite a few people who are still trying to chase after both of them. I mean, way more so than Master of Ryan 2 than Master of Ryan 1. But, you know, you're starting to see people that kind of come around to the idea that Master of Ryan 1 did do some things that were pretty, pretty awesome, pretty smart, right? I mean, you have your Domus Galaxia, you have your, even your Stars and Shadow, and now your Remnants of Precursors, Remnants of the Precursors. So you, you, you do have people that are chasing this, like these classics that have done things very well. But with that being said, when Ray and I spoke not too long ago about Remnants of the Precursors and just these games in general, I remember him saying that he thought that Master of Ryan 1 was kind of a fleet simulator in a lot of ways. Like you, 
It was more about like how you organized and deployed your fleets. I mean, clearly there's some planet management, but it was more about your fleets. And I, I agree with that. So I think that's where like the base of this simplicity idea comes from, because instead of worrying so much about like where you're building things and, you know, how many troops you have and all this other stuff, you're much more worried about where you're deploying fleets, how, uh, how you're building these ships and how you're composing these fleets and stuff like that, where, where Master Ryan 2 became much more about like where you're building where and you know, there was so much micromanagement at the end game that uh, I remember just feeling like my head was going to explode. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, <clears throat> I've been trying to actually play games without looking at YouTube videos or looking up guides and stuff. But, you know, so, oh, yeah, I'll try this. It's, it's a pretty simple game, right? I was getting my ass kicked up and down. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to resort a bit to watching a couple YouTube videos and stuff and... I think at first you, like, for example, I had such a hard time with the Space Amoeba and um, I kind of discovered that it's not actually as bad as it would be in a modern 4X to just lose your planet like that. You actually learn that it's actually not that too bad and there's ways to deal with that without having to even fight it. So, yeah, it's, it's stuff like that that's built into it that at first I found frustrating, but as you get into the game more, you actually find these things are quite entertaining, to be honest. Well, before I get into the point, I do want to uh, apologize to Drexy. I should let him know that the Space Amoeba in Remnants of the Precursors is tuned at what would be the impossible difficulty level in the original game. <laughs> I, I wanted to create a challenge, and by tuning it to the impossible difficulty, I, I still kind of stayed true to the original game. But it's definitely a lot harder in Remnants for that reason. But what I really want to talk about, and when I talked about comparing the two games, is there's two things that can really, I think I want to say definitively about the Master of Ryan 1 game design. I mean, if you ignore the interface stuff, which is a reflection of 1993, and even maybe some of the AI stuff, which is more of a reflection of how you know uh, studios don't prioritize AI development, the two things I'd want to say is, number one, the Moo one, Master Round one game design is not perfect. Nothing's perfect, right? And number two, maybe it is. I mean, when I play Moo one and Moo two, when you if you play on both, if you play Moo one and then go play Moo two, you will see things that are broken in Moo two, right? You'll see like, oh, I played Moo one and now I play Moo two, and this is broken. This is actually worse, and you, it doesn't really go the other way around. You don't play Moo 1 and go, oh, this is broken. I mean, it's really hard to find flaws in the game that are not based on it being made in 1993. So I think it's really good. I mean, it's a great design, and uh, that's the reason I based uh, – that's the reason I made Remnants of the Precursor. I'm not trying to pitch. But that's the reason I made the game is because I wanted to reintroduce what I thought was this great game to a modern gaming audience. I was actually um... – I was reading the Wikipedia article for uh, Master of Orion One uh, yesterday, and I was I was reading. There's a there's kind of a, a section in it about the game reviews, right? About how it's how it was received when when the game was released back in '93 or whenever it was, and it seems to be that the the biggest criticism that people that people at the time seemed to be able to find for it was that uh, it didn't have multiplayer. Well, think about that for a minute. That was like the biggest criticism they could come up with, and uh, one of the guys who the, the you know the 
the famous review where they came up with the whole forex thing um who that, that guy incidentally he actually did have some input into the design of the game um I, his name i forget now alan emmerich right so that was it it was alan emmerich now he was saying that really it's more difficult to try and find something that you don't like with Master of Orion than it is to try and criticize the things that are in there because it's it's just such a really it's just such a great game design. Now, okay, Alan Emmerich did have some input, I believe, into into the design of that game, so he might be a little bit he might be a little bit biased there, right? But I think we can all agree that it's a really elegant game design, considering I mean, considering the scale of the game, it's it's absolutely huge. And so I want to talk about that a little bit, right? So it, it's it's important, I think, to outline the particular gameplay mechanics that are working, that that work to Master Ryan 1's advantage, that make it a more quote-unquote simple game. And, you know, one thing that really stands out to me is planetary management. So instead of you going each turn to turn and determining what you're going to build, you're, you're using sliding scales. And, you know, some people might think that that's a little too abstract, but for me, in a, in especially once you get to a point where you have 10, 15, 20 planets, it's so much easier to manage that kind of thing. So I don't, I'm not sitting there worrying about automated factory that I'm going to build next or the freaking bazaar, whatever it is that I'm going to buy, but you know, like the economic capital, or I'm trying to remember some of the, the buildings that you had in Master Ryan 2. You're, you're more worried about the grander scale of things, right? Like if you were to like kind of pull back away from if you were to like imagine yourself as an, an emperor in this case, and that's what you're, I guess you're playing, right? It's not really ever said, but you're playing as this emperor and you wouldn't bog yourself down in these kind of details, right? Like I wouldn't give two shits about what earth is building as long as earth is doing the general thing that I need them to do. Right. And then Mars, if, if we've moved on to Mars and we have a, a colony there, if I'm, if I'm intergalactic emperor, I don't care particularly about what they're building on that planet I'm more worried about what I'm actually like getting out of that planet. And I think that works really well for a Forex game because it allows me to think bigger. It allows me to consider more about, you know, where my borders are, who, who's coming from the North, who's coming from the West, who, who, what am I worried about, you know, and, and what do I need to focus my huge empire on rather than these small little details that I think just don't work in Forex games. Right. And this is, the, my biggest problem with Stellaris is, yeah, your planet management and stuff. Great when you've got a couple of planets and you're trying to min-max and get the most out of them. But once your old empire grows to a certain size and you're at, in all these wars, you really do not want to be dealing with all this minutia that uh, Stellaris throws at you. So playing Remnants and Move 1, of course, it's it was so refreshing that, okay, I've got to this point, I've got all these planets, now everyone's ready to go to war sort of thing. And you can sort of focus on that. Yeah, sure, you can maybe colonize a few more planets, adjust a few sliders, but it's not like, oh, my planets are rioting because there's overpopulation and uh, someone in your federation wants you to vote on this and the Galactic Empire wants you to vote on this, which is distracting you from your goal, which is to kill everyone and take over the universe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and to belabor that point a little bit more, if you think about it, I mean, what happened in Mu2 is they added build cues and it's kind of a kitchen sink problem. You look at something that's really simple and you go, oh, let's just, it's good, but let's make it better because it's too simple. But the reality is, is if you 
add detail, like Rob was talking about, you end up with all these build queues and you have a lot of tedium if you have a large map. And so another solution is then to automate that tedium, right? You know, to have automated build queues or like, you know, with Stellaris, you have these sectors where you don't manage them anymore. And if it's automated, then what's the point of having it in the game? I mean, if you're not, if it's, if it's something that's below the player's view, it shouldn't be in the game. It's just, you're relying on the AI to do something, right? You don't want the AI to play the game for you, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's important, I think, to to examine Master of Orion um, in the context of the games that followed it. And particularly if you're, I mean, I know we're not specifically talking about Master of Orion 2 here, but this is an issue with Master of Orion 2 specifically. And this is my main issue with Master of Orion 2 was the build, the way that the colony management worked and the excessive micromanagement that that created. And it, that was a system that they'd taken straight from Master of Orion, uh, sorry, from Master of Magic. And in Master of Magic, that works because Master of Magic was a different game. And this kind of this makes a really important point, which I think is the crux to understanding why Master of Orion One is such a good game design. You can't really take out one specific game mechanic from Master of Orion and then and then jam it into something new and expect to make it a good game like Master of Orion One was. These systems are all inextricably linked, um, and to try to, for, you know, there are many games, for example, uh, that took the re, uh, the random random tech tree from Master of Orion One and put it into their game as an option where it might not necessarily work because the rest of the game isn't built around that specific mechanic. And it's the same with the building management, thing, uh, with the with the planet management um, in Master of Orion 2. It, Master, uh, Master of Magic works like that. It, it's, a, it's a very, very different game. It's, its scope is much bigger in, in many ways than Master of Orion 1. And, you know, I mean, we can talk about Master of Magic another day, but Master of Orion 2 didn't... It, I personally don't think that it it did well to uh, to try and transplant those that that specific thing from uh, Master of Orion one and the leader mechanic as well. It's another thing. So Master of Orion one kind of it had the benefit of being the first game. Yeah, it didn't it didn't have the uh, the need for the developers to iterate on its success and to create something that was bigger and better. Yeah, and I'll paraphrase something that Ray said when we spoke last, and that he thought, or I think there's like maybe some talk or you know, well-known discussion about how maybe civilization influenced Master Ryan 2 because you had these mechanics from civilization, civilization 2, where, you know, you were building your your colonies out like that, right? You were making those kind of choices there on those colonies and, th- and someone has thought, okay, well, you know, we're going to take the Master Ryan formula and we're going to make it bigger, better and throw more shit into it. And that's got to be make it, that's got to make it better, right? And, you know, I, I think that's where, a lot of people look back now and they say, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe for some people, right. Some people like that kind of stuff. But in, for, for me, somebody who's been playing 4X games for as long as they've been around, for as long as the term's been around, I really just enjoy the, like the, the elegance of being very hands off with that kind of stuff. And, and I don't like being bogged down. You're right, Drexy, in saying that like stuff like with Stellaris or, I mean, even like Endless Space 2 or games that have come after Master Ryan 2 that have kind of, Follow that Master Ryan two formula, you know you do get bogged down with these these build cues and and almost every time in every game you have like this build everything everywhere mentality where there's no real rhyme or reason to to what you're building right you're thinking okay well I, I want a production increase so I'll build that mine factory or whatever it is or maybe I want some more research so I'll throw in a research lab and 
you know, you just keep doing that as much as you as much as you can, right? You just keep throwing stuff in your queue, and eventually you don't have anything to build because you've made it through the whole tech tree, and that's all you have. But it's not; it doesn't feel strategic, right? So I think once you start to limit people's options, that's where it starts to feel strategic. And then I think too is where the technology tree of Master Ryan One um, starts to shine as well. Um, and Rob, I want to emphasize a point you mentioned earlier about um, how Master Ryan One is about fleet management, where the idea is, you you know, a lot of your brain power in the game is spent figuring out where you want to send fleets, who you want to attack, who you want to defend. And um, not having to deal with all this colony management allows you to work on that. And one of the neat things about uh, Master Friend 1 is it's not just about making friends, but the enemy of your enemy is a friend. So, for example, if you've got somebody who doesn't like you, Right, and but you want them to like you, and but they won't take a non-aggression pact. You can go find out who they're at war with, and start beating up on their enemy, and suddenly they kind of start warming up to you, right? So there's all this um, lower-level strategy you can do that's not really part of the official rules, but the way the mechanics are set up, it, it creates a dynamic among the the uh, empires that I'm not really sure I've seen in a lot of other games. Yeah, I want to just quickly jump back to the planetary management side of things. What I found really great about the Master Ryan 1 system is you can, say, for example, you're in the top corner of the map. You can have all your backwater systems that you're not worried about getting attacked uh, doing full research. And then the ones in the middle, you can have them making ships and sending them to, like, your outline systems that are possibly being attacked. And then those outline systems, you can have them maybe just purely building defenses or having them 50-50 defense, 50-50 building ships. So it, it was so nice just to have that easy uh, colony management where you're just getting what you need from that planet rather than saying, oh, yeah, let's build like some mining things here and alloy things here and research buildings here. And No, you just go around, you do the sliders, and then because you've not got all these buildings – your planet can change from a research planet to uh, pumping out ships immediately without worrying about, I'm going to destroy these buildings and then there's going to be unemployment on this planet. So that whole system, it was just so refreshing for me. Yes, Master Orion is really one of those games where the, the the, the, the user interface and the mechanics make it easy for you to focus purely on the the strategic side of the game. And the strategic side of the game in Master of Iron One is really uh, is really entertaining. Like there's there's a lot of fun to be had with the fleet management and the tactical combat and designing your ships, and you know. But it, it's the, the game to play Master of Iron. You've really got to be aware of the, everything that's going on in the galaxy that you know, because you've the, because of the way that the victory condition works with with the council victory. If you've got a significant share of the size of the galaxy and um, you've got two powerful neighbors, let's just say, who have got more population than you, or one of them who's got more population than you, and he's got a lot of friends. Well, you need to be quick, and you need to start thinking about taking some of his friends away or causing them to hate him because you're going to lose. And so you really have to think about the strategy of the game at every single level. And yeah, those simple mechanics make it very easy for you to not get distracted. I mean, uh, slightly off that specific topic, but the tactical combat is another thing about Master Orion that really facilitates this because it's it's so it's so quick to play, and yet it's relatively deep. It, it's so much deeper than it looks on the surface, particularly once you start unlocking some of the later technologies, right? And 
it that it doesn't take away from your from the the, the great fun that you're having really trying to play the strategic level you know the tactical combat will come up you can also you can auto resolve it if you want or you can play it out and it doesn't take long to play and that that's not just with the tactical combat that goes through every element of master of orion everything that you do every focused tactical decision or um lower level strategic decision that you take can be done really really simply and it doesn't detract from that overall um flow that you get into of actually figuring out what it is you need to do to beat the game yeah and the tactical combat is another thing that a lot of people thought that they could improve uh, one of the things in Master of Orion 1, if you've never played it, the tactical combat is actually really small. It's about like a grid of about, I don't know, like 8 by 10 squares or 12 by 10. So when combat starts, the enemy is literally on top of you. You get about two moves and everybody's shooting. So there's no way to kite around. There's no way to try to, you know, um, you know, exploit the AI. It's it's pretty much a slugfest and you get to see right on hand how well your ships are going to do based on how well you designed them or you're going to retreat and it's quick and it doesn't detract from the rest of the game. You have a combat, you see what happens and then, you know, you, you move on to the rest of the game. It doesn't take forever to do combat. Yeah. And that's something I've said in the past is that sort of formula, that formula of figuring out the balance between tactical combat that requires some sort of input, some sort of prior thought and, and keeping it from detracting from the general overall strategy game is really important. And there's games that I think that fall too heavily in the tactical combat side of things. And and then there's games that I think, for, you know, focus too much on empire management. And it's, it's pretty, I think it's pretty obvious, at least anecdotally to me, that, that a lot of people enjoy both sides of that, right? So we get into Forex games because we do like to, you know, manage our empires to, to feel like we're creating something, you know, that that you know that we're we're starting from humble beginnings and we're creating this massive empire capable of you know generating this huge war machine or this huge technological powerhouse of 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 capabilities and that's a lot of fun but we also really enjoy tactical thinking too and and I think that's where some forexes fall because they don't they don't incorporate tactical combat into their games and you know you can get away with that you can get away like there are games out there that that I think get away without having tactical combat as long as the you know, the strategic portion is, is good enough. But, you know, I, I look at games like Sorcerer King and Fallen Enchantress and these other games that are sort of like the, almost like the the perfect balance for me when it comes to tactics and stri- strategy. Um, and and they, they share the same, they, well, they have the same, they're, they're very similar, right? They have that, that, ta- that fast tactical combat that doesn't feel like it's taking away from my strategic thoughts. And, you know, I am able to knock it out quick enough that I'm not worried about, Oh yeah, well, what am I doing back on the strategic map? I'm not. Oh yeah, shoot, I forgot. It's been 42 minutes since I had that combat. You know, I think that's important, right? So, I know we're, we're belaboring this a bit, but I think that's such an important part and it's such an important aspect of what Master Ryan One did well that it it's what I think really shines through when you start talking about why Master Ryan One is so good. Well, it's like many of many of the, uh, these kind of ideas in Master of Ryan One got taken through by by. Uh, and used as a kind of a, a telemetry for other for other forex developers in order to to figure out where they were going to take their games. I, it's interesting you just talked about Fallen Enchantress and Sorcerer King. 
Um, I know that Derek Paxton, he was actually, he jumped on Reddit the other day in a, in praise of Master of Magic. Um, and he was, he, he, you, you can just tell, I mean, uh, Fallen Enchantress is clearly, is clearly heavily influenced by Master of Magic. Now, for both Fallen and Enchantress and Sorcerer King have really quick playing tactical combat. And I know for a fact that they deliberately left out certain, certain things in a, in tactical combat that you might expect could have been put in there. For example, the range of uh, arti- uh, of missile units like archers they, they, they can fire right across the map you know and uh, or there's no terrain there's no um unit adjacency bonuses and the reason they deliberately put didn't put that in because uh, the way that Stardock were thinking was the tactical combat needs to be quickly resolved yet fun uh, but if it takes away from the strategic side of things then it's going to that's not going to be fun and that again that is that's lifted straight out of master of orion and you know it's it's that same kind of design thinking. Yeah, another aspect about Master Ryan one that I want to talk about real quick is that the research, the technology tree, and its implementation really works in a way that that feels asymmetric almost. Like you know, so like what I really like about it is that you're going to go into every game and there's like a I, from, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ray, because you probably know this a little bit better than I do. But like from what I understand, there's various tiers on each of these technology trees, right? So you have six tech ladders and each of them have a tier. Um, like, I don't know, I don't know how many tiers there are, but there's certain tiers where like each, like there's a grouping of technologies that you'll have. And every time you play a game, you're going to see maybe half of those, right? And unless you're the Cylons, but you, you get to choose from those. And in each of those is a really, it's an important choice, right? So and much more so than I think any, almost any other 4X, because sometimes you'll choose something and, you know, that's something that you'll need to make sure that that's going to be important to you immediately or soon, because things change so quickly, right? You know, one day you could be researching something that you think is going to be good for your colonies and you're hoping to use to like boost your, your planets and stuff like that. But then Three turns later, you're at war with the Mershon, and <laughs> which I've had. So it's something that you got to think, but it, you, you have to be able to consider, you know, turns out, many turns out, or also consider uh, just a few turns out. And the choices that you're making are are almost always going to be unique to that game, you know, because like they're, you're, you, of course, if you play enough, you're going to see the same choices at some point. But, you know, I play one game as the Darlock and then one, one game as the Cylons. I'm not going to see the same groupings of technologies to choose from each time. And I think that that adds a lot of replayability, in my opinion. You know, and that's a, a really good point because, you know, in each tier, there may be one or two or three technologies and you have to choose which one you want to do. And so you pick one and you research it. And then when you complete it, it's not just a simple choice now of going back and say, okay, now let me go do the other one that I skipped. Because when you research that when you complete research, it opens up the next higher tier. So now you're just saying, do I want to get this cheap technology that I skipped over that's going to benefit me? Or do I want to spend more time in researching and researching more advanced tech that'll move me up the ladder? So you, there's always this tension of trying to move up the ladder, but yet not skip lower level technologies that you that you want to get, right? And that's that's a pretty interesting and probably kind of unintended effect of the way it was designed. And you know, the, this is an uh, an example of just how deep the uh, you know each of the systems in Master of Orion is. Each of the tech, uh, the six different tech categories, they also have a secondary effect. They're not just there to tell you where you're at within that particular 
line of development. But for example, uh, computer tech, the higher the level you get in it, the better your spying is, right? So this becomes really important for races like the Daleks because the Daleks are relying heavily on espionage. Now, this is going to segue quite nicely into the idea that Master of Orion has absolutely amazing uh, faction asymmetry. And it was way, way ahead of its time in this regard because each of the different races, each one of them has bonuses and penalties to specific types of research so the different research tiers certain ones are better at others so that kind of informs it gives you a hint of how you have to play you don't have to play like that for example the mershan they they have uh, they've got a very poor tech tree generally but they they're really good at weapons so that basically tells you you're going to be fighting with the mershan right and the daleks they they get a bonus to computers and nothing else so the daleks are kind of you're in, you really want to be uh, pushing them towards computer tech because that enable, that actually helps their espionage abilities. Uh, they also have some racial bonuses to uh, to espionage roles. Um, so there's a dice roll that's, that happens every time you try to steal technology or do a sabotage attempt, and the Daleks get a big bonus. So this is just an example. Each one of the races has has a bonus or a penalty uh, that informs how they should play. And each one of those is tied in intrinsically to one of the main core uh, game mechanics of Master of Orion. It's just really, it's really important to see how, how great that system is. And the, the fact that the, the faction asymmetry isn't too heavy handed, it's subtle. It's much less subtle than say civilization. It's much more effective than civilization, but it, yeah, the, each of the races plays so differently and there's 10 races, right? So there's so much replayability in this game. Right, and this could, as me coming as a a new, really fresh to this this uh, style of game, I can't remember who I was playing, but uh, one of my games I didn't actually get the early um, warp tech. I can't remember what it's called that allows you to travel uh, further. So I was kind of stuck. I actually got stuck uh, not being able to colonize more planets. So this is one thing as. From a new player's sort of thing, you don't really un- realise how the races make a difference to the game. And in the end, I actually ended up... Um, I think I was doing playing the... What's the one with the spies? Anyway, I ended up stealing that tech from another race. So, yeah, that was quite an interesting and unexpected uh, thing that happened in one of my games early on. Right, yeah. And so in my recent stream too, I was playing as a Sakura and it's just... You know, they're they have. I mean, their population bonus is. I mean, maybe slightly OP, <laughs> but you know, it's something that you, yeah, you focus, you shape your whole gameplay focus around, right? So, like, I mean, for me, I knew that I was going to be able to just throw troops of people, just, just constantly, right? And like, even when I lose a battle, I would just throw another forty-five million troops at this place, and you know, it really helps to shape how you're playing that game. And and for me, I feel like, you know, with the soccer, you can overcome the Borothi's ability to possibly complete ground combat better or, you know, have a, a strength there because you just have the numbers, right? It's kind of like the, the Zerg, right? And there's also a great, there's a, a huge benefit to being able to just throw population at new pop, uh, new planets too. So you can kickstart them quickly and get them going off the ground quicker. And yeah, there's, it's subtle, right? It's not endless legend-like, right? Where you're having these gross asymmetries that, you know, almost completely pigeonhole you into a, a certain type of gameplay. But, you know, it, it there there's definitely like the best way to play races, but there's also, I mean, as a soccer, I was extremely aggressive. 
Um, but you could just be a very pacifist soccer group that just colonizes everything and has this huge population and, you know, has a standby fleet, but, you know, doesn't need to be aggressive. So, and, and, and that's the case with everything. Like you could be Darlocks and you could still be very expensive and you could still be stealing all these technologies, but maybe that's all you do. Or maybe you are extremely aggressive and you're stealing everybody's technology from them and using them against them. So what I liked about Mastermind 1's asymmetry is that it, I don't feel like it pigeonholed me. It it created an outline, but I could go outside that outline if I wanted to. Yeah, another thing too is um, your research choices aren't just uh, constricted by what happens to show up in your research tree or maybe uh, guided by what's best for your race or whatever, but there's a lot of... Uh, um, context uh, specific stuff for example you may get some uh, ecology text for colonizing certain planets first of all that's really cool for example the exploration phase of the game is gated by your ability to research colonization text like you there may be a bunch of planets around you that you literally can't colonize and expand into because you don't have the technology for it but at the same time you may get technologies that are worth researching or not worth researching based upon the planets around you. Like, you know, you may get like a controlled Inferno environment tech available to research, but there's no Inferno planets around you. So you can kind of safely skip that. You know, it just depends on what's in the map in your current game too, which is another, you know, level of um, depth, I guess. Yeah. I wouldn't, one thing I want to ask you guys who are more experienced, um, it's obvious that some races are a lot easier to play some races kind of uh, force you into a certain type of play and some races are really hard to play. Now, <clears throat> on the one side, for a new player, this is a bit confusing and uh, maybe you oh, you like the look of a race and you play it, but then you, you lose because it's such a hard race to play. But on the flip side of this coin, for someone who's played the game a lot, the challenge of playing a certain race might actually adds to the game and give uh, a more longevity to the game what do you guys think about that that's absolutely right often people um with forex games I, I i suspect that a lot of people will gravitate towards the humans yeah because people want to play the good guys they want to play the the more familiar race the master of orion one the humans are one of the better races they have they have an excellent bonus to diplomacy and they also get increased trade. Everybody likes you. Um, so it, all of the all of the different factions, they all have a different, not only do they have bonuses or uh, penalties to to the research that, they're, uh, that they do in different areas, but they also have uh, relationships with one another and the humans are basically liked by everyone. So that makes the game a lot easier for them. They also have some really, really useful um t uh, tech tree kind of bonuses too which you know they're better than a lot of the other races whereas for example the mershan are generally considered to be the worst faction and the reason being is because they are so they are so geared for war and not much else uh, and yet they have a real big penalty to their construction tech which means all their ships are going to be a lot worse so there are certain factions that are that really are on the higher difficulty settings, you want to be playing them when you're better at the game. The Daleks are another one because because their reliance on espionage really means that um, you're making a lot of dice rolls to espionage, and eventually you're going to fail one. And that every time you fail, a, a, you know you get caught. Your spies get caught. It hits uh, diplomatic. Uh, it hits your diplomacy with that particular faction so heavily. So the Daleks aren't necessarily geared for war, and you're going to be finding yourself involved in them. So 
every play every every race is very different and it really does like you say Drexy, it really does allow for you to to pick and choose how you want to play and do you want to play a difficult game do you want to play a relatively easy game do you want to try lots of expansion do you want to try war and then the game will say no 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 you can't try expansion this time sakura no you're going to have to now push your research because you've got no colonies around you so you're going to have to now go for research so it's just great in that respect right and this is probably one of the biggest difference i found uh with this game and more modern games is the way the races work and that sort of um rather than just upping a difficulty level which you do in most modern games actually the difficulty level almost comes from playing a certain race itself compared to modern games yeah like i say you just oh well i'll just play on this extreme setting now of course you've got the uh difficulty setting in master of ryan but you've got the difficulty setting plus the race you play on top of that, which totally changes how hard the game is. Yeah, and sometimes, though, you can get good rules. Like, right, I'm not saying that, I mean, you're right, 100%. So sometimes the faction you choose can change the difficulty, but that doesn't always affect it, right? Sometimes you can be the Darlock and just hit roll after roll after roll and just steal all this tech. And the next thing you know, you are the most powerful thing in the planet or in the in the galaxy because you've you've got all the technologies. You've you've, you've lucked out, right? You've done everything you needed to do, and now you have all the technology, and you're just steamrolling everybody. So, while the I mean, I, I think universally everybody thinks the Mershon are probably the most difficult. You know, I, I and I agree with that. I think that you know if if you played them right, they could be very powerful, right? So, yeah, great points. There's something that I wanted to talk about a little bit too is is what we would change. And I know that Ray has a lot to say about this because he's made some changes to the base formula. And I, a, lot, a lot of them I, I 100% love and agree with. And a lot of them come from modernizing the UI and making some things much easier, you know, a, a 2020 easier than a 1993 just sort of settling with. But, you know, the, the one thing that I think sticks out to me, and it's something that Ray has started to address is that you know, for a game that I believe relies a lot on diplomacy, I would have liked to see more diplomatic choices, more diplomatic options. You know, the, I'm not sure exactly where I'd go with it because, you know, it's something where I feel like you have a pretty good base system now. But, you know, if diplomacy was more detailed, more option oriented, and maybe a little bit more nuanced, it would create a maybe a, a stronger feel for or a stronger connection with you and your race. And like I said, Ray's done some great things. So there's new things. There's actually options and remnants of precursors that I don't believe existed in Master Ryan 1 because it's been so damn long. But I don't remember there being joint wars and stuff in, in Master Ryan 1. Am I wrong, Ray? You're not wrong. Excellent. Okay. So yeah, some of the things that I know you're doing are adding to what I believe was a kind of lackluster dip- diplomacy system. And now playing it, you know, I, some of the things, the subtle, some of the subtle things that you've added to the Master Ryan One formula through diplomacy, I really appreciate. So, um, and and some of that's through flavor text. Some of that is through, you know, the the way things kind of change based on you know even what you were saying earlier, right? You find the enemy of your enemy, and you can make your friend. Stuff like that wasn't in the original game, and it's now here in Remnants of the Precursors that I think really improves the overall feel. Okay, so diplomacy is a little weird, right? I mean, we see diplomacy as a feature. But what diplomacy really is, is it's the way the player interacts with the AI. And so as a result, 
it's heavily dependent upon what the AI can do. So some changes I made in Remnant's precursors, like Joint Wars, for example, came out of a desire to add a feature that was in Moo 1, which was convincing an AI to declare war on somebody else, but doing it in such a way that it, it wasn't a way for the player to cheese the AI, right? So there's kind of a similar ability in the original game, but I've kind of tweaked it so that it's balanced and not so exploitable. And for example, the same thing with like offering tribute, like in uh, Master Variant 1, you could offer tribute and you can make the AI love you and you know it, it's an easy time. But in Remnants of Precursors, you can still do that. But when you uh, offer a tribute to an empire, not only does he like you, but anyone he, he's at war with now dislikes you for for helping him, right? So there's like a there's like a give and take between it. So um, a lot of that has to do with me trying to prevent the player from having too easy in the time of exploiting the AI. Yeah, I want to uh, talking of improvements. Um... The thing with uh, Move One is basically this is uh, a game that comes from an era where you studied manuals back in those back in the day, which isn't really something that happens in modern games. You have tutorials and, of course, YouTube videos and stuff like that. So, <clears throat> for me, um, actually watching you stream the game, Ray, and actually explaining stuff like the fleet management screen when you were going through with uh, stuff with the filters and stuff like that really, really helped me uh, with the game. Um, but, I mean, what can we, what can happen to really, I don't know, are we? Ex- are you expecting people to have to read the manual or are we going to get st- stuff like, I don't, I don't know if a tutorial will be right, but may, like tool tips, for example, because some a lot of stuff in this game can be quite abstract if you're new to the game. I don't, I don't know what, can be done have you got any ideas of what you can further help uh, new players well i think part of it is number one i hate tool tips but uh, um the main thing is is it's okay to have a little bit of uh, of a learning process for players because you know there's a difference between a, a new player and an experienced player and an experienced player knows a lot of the nuances we're going to have a manual uh, i think tom chick is going to be writing the game manual and we're probably going to have it available uh, within the game in PDF form or something, but I don't really want to gut up the UI for with things that people are only going to need in the first two or three hours um, that they when they play the game. But as far as like improving Moo, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm in a, a unique situation of actually having to do it, so I can probably speak to that better than a lot of other people. The first thing I did was I wanted to improve the interface. I wanted to modernize it. And there was kind of an un- unintended side effect. Uh, the game became much faster to play, right? It became much easier to play because you weren't slowed down by the UI. So whereas like in the original game, a hundred star galaxy was the largest galaxy. And in Remnants of the Precursors, the exact same galaxy galaxy seems very small and you can play a lot of turns a lot faster. And, and so um, people wanted bigger maps which creates its own problem because now you have larger empires to manage. So one thing um, I, I worked with our graphic designer and we developed two new UIs and I'm going to brag about these because honestly, they're amazing. I don't know how else to describe it, but the uh, fleets UI, which you mentioned and the systems UI are specifically designed to make the management of really large empires easier. Um, the fleets UI allows you to move lots of things 
at the same time very easily. Like I want to redirect 50 fleets, you know, over here. You can just do it like in, in three seconds. Or I want to change every everyone in my system that's building this design to build this design. You know, so you don't have to go click through all your systems and look for them. You just click a couple buttons and it works. Whereas the system screen is more about finding trouble spots within a large empire, which is hard to do also. And to be perfectly honest with you, these were not part of the original plan of the game. And they have just turned out much better than I had ever expected, which is why I'm I'm so excited about them. And I honestly think that a lot of people who play Space Forks games, and I'm, I'm dead serious about this. Are going to if they play Remnants of the Precursors and they use these new screens and get used to them, they're going to like expect these screens like this with these capabilities in other games. They're going to go to Firaxis or or Amplitude or Paradox or whoever or Stardock and say, "Hey, listen, why can't you give me this ability? I mean, here's this one guy who made a game who designed these screens and they're super useful. So you know, why can't a studio do that?" And I I hope. I hope that if the if Remnants changes anything in the genre, it's to like kind of in, improve the usability we see in other Forex games because of these changes. Right. Yeah. As soon as I saw the um, that stream you did with that thing, it, it was just I I wasn't even going into those screens when I first started playing, and once I saw how you used them, it was like a revelation to me. It made my um, gameplay experience uh so much smoother and uh just so much easier and this is this is the point i was trying to make though the sense of discovery in games is something that you just don't sort of get in newer games but uh how can i explain because we've been spot with all these newer systems tutorials um youtube videos people kind of expect just to know everything off the bat. Whilst back in the day when we used to play games, you could play games for years and still be discovering new things. But, okay, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. I'm I'm, I'm a, like a Quake player originally. I played Quake World and Quake 3. And those that game was really big at one point. But once the realistic shooters came out where people could easily get a lucky headshot, and kill people being a new player you could get lucky and kill an experienced thing those sort of hardcore arena shooters kind of died off and now newer players are expecting these uh easier types of gameplay do we think people will be willing to go back to a more hardcore self-discovery discovering your own tactics type of gameplay i think yes this was, I think, the point that you've just made, Drexy, might be the most important point that we've made in this entire podcast. That um, <clears throat> the experience that I've had now, I, I was playing Master of Orion One actually recently before I came across Remnants of the Precursors, and I was enjoying it greatly. But the biggest problem that I had with it was the user interface. Um, I, I touched on this at the start of the podcast, but it really is that. There is a lot of micromanagement in in Master of Orion 1 if you want to play very optimally. You don't have to, and that's the great thing. Like, I watched Rob streaming Remnants of the Precursors, and he was doing better than I was, and he didn't make half the adjustments to his planet sliders that I would have done. So you don't need to play like that, but you can, right? Now, in, in Master of Orion 1, the original, it's really, it's really finicky and fiddly, and there's a lot of clicking. Remnants of the Precursors, for example, 
you can mount, you can use the mouse wheel on everything, not just on those sliders, but you can use them for changing the ship graphic that you want to use. You can use them in pretty much every ma- uh, screen that uh, you know, nearly all the screens that you're using, including the research screen. You can use the mouse wheel to scroll through the different categories. It's just, I, I have to give Ray some credit here. The the attention to detail with regards to streamlining the game and and making it a pleasure to play is absolutely phenomenal. And the I, I urge people to go out and play this. You won't be able to go back to Master of Orion one after this. And Drexy, you made a great point. Uh, this game is is it's exceptionally deep. It's much deeper than uh, than people make out. Like I, I was streaming Remnants of the Precursors the other day, and I had one of the developers from another game uh, message me afterwards saying, "You know, I, I played Master of Orion one before, and I kind of you know I, you know I saw the I saw people why people liked it, but I really didn't see all the nuance in it that I got from watching your stream." Um, so I think there's going to be a whole new generation of people who can go back uh, to this game and really get a lot out of it without a doubt yeah and, and this is the thing um what ray's doing is improving the ui from what is it almost 30 years of ui ux experience that we've had in games but without making it over convoluted like new games still keeping what makes uh master ryan style game great without having to change it too much to modernize it, if you get what I mean. That stuff like the mouse wheel, yeah, again, another thing that blew my mind when Ray showed me uh, how, how that works. Yeah, and so I think, too, that it's important to realize that we're, I think, I mean, here we are. We're not, we're not trying to wax poetic about you, Ray, but we are in some ways. Um, what I think is really very important to remember is that, at least from my perspective, right, like he could have gone a couple ways and you could have made it like more slick or more maybe uh, aesthetically pleasing, like, like maybe even Amplitude Studios does. Right. But instead I think you started to think outside the box and you figured out ways that make that game much easier to play, much better to play. And I think the UI elements that you've added with the fleet stuff, with the system stuff and, and all that, and, you know, utilizing various ways to, to convey information, but that doesn't need to, pollute the screen unless you want it to, right? Like if I need this stuff, yeah, it's a quick click and then it's a quick other click and that's it. And you know, you're not, I I think it was really important that you figured out a way to make it accessible without being overwhelming. And you did a really good job of that. So um, yeah, I think that it's going to be really difficult for just about anyone to go back to Master Ryan 1, let alone some other games, let alone some modern 4x games okay so um i didn't honestly expect this podcast to turn into a love fest for my game and it's it's super <laughs> great it's super greatly appreciated for anyone listening i want you to know that um i have no financial incentive in the game i'm giving away the game for free uh in fact the open beta is going to start on easter and not only am i making the game for free i'm also open sourcing the code so if anybody wants to look at the code and you know see how it works and even offer suggestions for improvement. I'm up for that, but it's a free game. Um, I think it's, I love it. I think it's great and it's available Easter. So um, just go to like, uh, okay, just go to remnantsofthepreCursors.com And I think if you go there, there'll be a link to go to our subreddit. If you want to talk about the game and there will be a link to uh, another link to download the game. If you want to just download it and play it. And thanks guys. I really appreciate that. I wasn't expecting all that. 
just a quick uh, question. You're saying you're open sourcing it. Does that mean people will be able to mod the game at all? Or will we still have to come back to you for uh, stuff? to? Well, if you know Java, you can download the code and you can uh, modify the code and make whatever version of Remnants of the Precursors you want to make, you know, for your own, you know, personal use if you want. And, oh, one thing I did is, like, um, I've created what I, within the code, and anyone who looks at the code will see it, there's a there's a set of the AI classes, which I call the community AI classes. And so I'm hoping that somebody, not me, will create up a separate res- repository and kind of create, like, a community version of the AI classes that I'll then incorporate into the game and then give players the option to either use the regular AI that I create or maybe the community version of the AI. So if they want, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are better programmers than me and they may make a better AI. So I am trying to accommodate that too. Yeah. My first thought goes to, I mean, there's a few people I have in mind when I consider people who can maybe make a mean AI. I don't need that. I'm not good enough, but to those who are, (laughs) that's something to look forward to. Anyway, yeah, so I, I think we've done a pretty good job of making the argument for why Master Ryan won and its simplicity and its hidden depth is a fantastic 4X game and why I think a lot of people overlook it. And unfortunately, you know, they they, they default to Master Ryan 2 where I think they should start to consider Master Ryan 1 and its formula as maybe just as just as elegant, maybe even more so in some of our opinions. And, you know, I, I look forward to what I believe Remnants of the Precursors will do to that mentality. So thanks for joining me, guys. Hey, Ray, thank you very much for being here. We know that you took time out of your busy day and your busy schedule and busy life to join us, and we appreciate it. Thank you. It was great. Thanks, Ben. And Drexy and Ben, thank you guys again for staying up until God knows what hour to join us in this conversation and to spout off some knowledge and and to make good arguments. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're lucky we both stay up all night. So, yeah, it's 5 a.m. currently. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. man, that's crazy. Me and Drexy oh. are both night owls by the sounds of things, so don't worry about it, bro. Well, I can tell you that it sounds like Nate has finally been able to rebuild his his house, and he's working on obtaining new computers, so he will be able to join us again. So I think it'll be the f- four of us, you know, if you guys can join still and... Thankfully, we have a recovered Drexy from something that's awfully scary at this point. So, you know, we'll we'll be able to kind of rotate some people in and, and get a lot of new voices and new opinions in. And I think that'll be great for the show. So thank you again, guys, for joining me. And we look forward to next episode where we'll, I don't know, we'll figure out some new fun topic to discuss. But this was fun. And until then, this was Ray, Ben, and Drexy for Explominate and myself, too. We'll talk to you guys next next week, next time, sometime. See ya. See ya. I really enjoyed that. <laughs>